Well, let me begin this morning by asking this question. When you hear the word grace, hear the word grace, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you hear that term, grace? I think, I think for some folks, uh, they simply hear it as a religious term, term grace. That's a term that religious people use. It's a, it's a word that church people use to describe being nice or being kind or being uber-friendly. A lot of people see that as kind of like a Ned Flanders word. It's just a word that speaks about being super nice. But for those of us who have truly tasted grace, I think much more comes to mind than just being nice. For those of us who have experienced the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we hear that term grace, we probably think of, we just sang about it, we probably think of the cross. I think of the cross. So when you hear that term grace, maybe what comes into your mind is what was done for us there upon the cross. The salvation secured for us there on the cross. That salvation, we did nothing to deserve. Amen? Salvation, we did nothing to deserve. And that's what grace is. Grace is simply a term that means getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. Grace is a gift. It's, it's being given something that you didn't work for, you didn't earn, you didn't merit. And that's what happened at the cross. Through the death of Jesus for our sins... Salvation was purchased for us. It was a salvation that we didn't work for, we didn't earn, we didn't merit, and we didn't deserve it. Amen? We didn't deserve it. So maybe when you hear that word grace, that's what you think of. You think of Jesus and what he did for you, what he did for us on the cross. But maybe that's not all that you think about. Maybe not only do you think of Jesus and his cross, but you also think about the church. Maybe when you hear that term grace, you think about your brothers and sisters in the gospel, your, your co-heirs of grace, the people who you gather together with, just like we've been able to do this morning, and, and rejoice in the grace of God, the people who, who you care for and you serve as an extension of that, that grace. So maybe when you hear that word grace, you think of the church, the people of grace. And that's a good thing to think about. Amen? It's a good thing to think about. It's a good thing to think about the cross. It's a good thing to think about the people of grace. Here's where I'm going with this opening question this morning. How many of us, when we hear that term grace, we think also about our home? How many of us think about our families? Did they come to mind when I said that term grace? Was that the first thing that came across your brain? Your families? Second thing? Did it come across there at all? Is grace something that you think about when you think about your family? Is grace a term that would characterize your family. Let me ask that question a little bit differently. Instead of, is grace a term that would characterize your family? Let me ask you, what does come to mind when you think about your family? What comes to mind when you think about your family? When you think about your home, what kind of place do you picture? What kind of place do you picture? Now, I think a lot of us would like to say, I picture my home as a place of love. That's what we'd like to say. We want to see our marriages and our families, our relationship with our spouse and our children as places where, where love thrives. That's what we like. But is that reality? Is that, and what I mean by that is, that's what, is that what's really going on there? It's a place where love thrives. Is that what's going on there consistently? Instead, I think what is often true, especially in our modern culture, is our homes become places of busyness. They become places of busyness. We get so Busy. Can I get an amen on that one? We get so busy. Both, both husbands and wives are just running from one thing to the next. Too busy at times to really even connect with one another. In our, in our culture, often both spouses are, are working full-time jobs. And even, even if a wife doesn't work outside of the home, that doesn't mean she isn't busy. She's often teaching the kids and then running them to sports or dance classes or music lessons or 4-H. And on top of that, she's trying to you know, keep on top of the home and do the finances and prepare meals amid a myriad of other things, all vying for her attention. It can really fill up a schedule. So, so whether she's working outside of the home or not, women in our culture are often very, very busy. And the same can be said for a lot of husbands. Uh, today, working a full-time job often means putting in much more than just 40 hours a week. And since so few of us live close to our jobs, you often add a really exhausting commute on top of an already exhausting, demanding day. So we get so busy. 
And our kids, they too, they too end up sucked into that vortex of busyness. Too many families seldom have just free evenings just to be together. Instead, we're running from one activity to another to another. And life begins to feel like it's just go, 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 go. Hurry up. Don't you know we're already late? Our homes can be places of such busyness. However, maybe when you think about your family, your home, it's not just the idea of busyness that comes to mind. Maybe the idea of frustration also comes to mind. Sometimes that's a hard one to admit. I think of my home, I think of frustration. That's a hard one to admit. But we can end up frustrated because there are things in our family that aren't going like we expected them to go. So we're frustrated. I'll just toss this out here. Maybe this is true of some of you. Probably not, but maybe it is. Maybe your marriage isn't like you expected it. Maybe your marriage isn't like you expected it. I won't ask for an amen on that one. But I do a lot of premarital counseling, and it's always interesting to meet with these young couples and hear their expectations and go, six months in, a year in, (laughs) there's a reality that's going to dawn on you. But maybe things in your marriage aren't like you expected. You expected that there would be more communication, more talking. Maybe you expected there would be less communication, less talking. Maybe you expected there'd be more intimacy, better intimacy, but right now it feels like you're living with a stranger. Maybe you thought you'd understand one another better or things would be easier or less demanding. Or you just thought you were marrying a different person. I thought you were a different person. Maybe right now your marriage feels frustrating because what you expected and what is reality are so very far apart. Maybe it's not your marriage. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe, we won't let this out from this room, you don't have to let it go beyond here, but maybe you're a frustrated parent. Again, I won't ask you to amen that one. But maybe you're a frustrated parent. Maybe you had this very, very idealistic vision of parenting. Like, I'm going to have kids, I'm going to be able to share with them all of my wisdom, all the life lessons I've accumulated, and they're just going to sit at my feet, or they're just going to snuggle up on my lap, and they're just going to eat it up. And they're just gonna, they're gonna look up at me with those little eyes of love and give me a hug and go, Mommy, Daddy, I just love you. Maybe you had that idealistic vision of parenting. But instead, what you're finding is parenting is a struggle. Parenting is a battle. It's a battle over bedtimes. It's a battle over wearing the same pair of underwear three days in a row. It's a battle over brushing your teeth. It's a battle over not hitting your brother, not putting your peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the DVD player. And all kinds of other things that you'd never expected to be battling about. And yet, yes, there are great moments of of snuggling and the I love yous. But sometimes they, they are so few and far between. Where you're just too exhausted to really enjoy that. And so we can end up frustrated. Our homes can become places of frustration. And that frustration leads to disappointment. Leads to discouragement. We can get stuck in this rut of being disappointed by the state of our marriage or discouraged by our efforts in parenting. And we then become weary people. Weary people. I think for too many people, although they want their home, their family to be a place of love, instead it can become a place of exhaustion. Exhaustion. However, starting this morning... I want, us to, I want to encourage us to see and to approach our homes, our families, in a different way. I want us to pursue building what I'll call homes of grace. Homes of grace. Places full of and characterized by grace. And as we begin, well, what I'm talking about is homes of grace. That will mean... That will mean that you will have to give the people in your family far more than they deserve, which is... Grace, amen? So it means giving people far more than they deserve, but it will also mean receiving far more than you deserve. It will mean just enjoying the amazing grace that you will receive. So as we begin to work through this, to talk about this, my prayer is that you're going to see how building a home of grace, it rescues us from our weariness. It rescues us from our frustrations and our discouragements and our disappointments. And my prayer is that we will all see together how, as we pursue this together, building homes of grace... We will all come to know the blessing, blessing of not just this, this abstract idea, but the blessing of this being 
a reality, this being our home, our homes being places of grace. So take your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, and turn over to the book of Colossians, Colossians in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and let's begin to look at what happens when the gospel comes home. What happens when the gospel invades our approach to family? Now, as you're turning there to Colossians, uh, let me remind you that as we've seen thus far already in our study of this book, this book is full uh, of truth about the sufficiency of Christ. This book is all about the sufficiency of Christ. Paul is writing this, this letter to this young church full of new believers And he's unpacking for them our glorious salvation, focusing specifically on the sufficiency of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He told them in chapter 1 that he said, In Christ, listen to this, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen again to that. That's from chapter 1. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself. That's a pretty sufficient Savior. Wouldn't you say? All things. All things. And then in chapter 2, Paul explained to his readers that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not just some. Not just a few. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he said, and you, they, these Christians in Colossae, He says, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So everything is hidden in Christ. And guess what? In Christ you are full. Again, pretty sufficient Savior. And that's just a sampling of what you find in the first two chapters of this letter. This book opens with repeated declarations of the overwhelming sufficiency of Christ. Paul reminds his readers that Jesus is more than enough for everything that we need. That's the first two chapters. But then when... We come here to chapter 3. Paul really begins to drill down and apply that truth, the sufficiency of Christ, begin to apply that to our everyday lives. He shows his readers how how our new life in Christ, how it affects, how it transforms our present life here and now. He explains how it transforms our desires, how it transforms our responses to difficult situations. He shows how it transforms the way that we see ourselves and the way that we interact with other people. And those are all the things that he's unpacked just in the first 14 verses of chapter 3. But then following that, Paul then begins to address how, how our new life in Christ is applied to our life together as a local church. A few weeks back, we began looking at this. We worked through verses 15 to 17, looking at our life together as a church. And Paul shows how the reality of Christ and his gospel then shapes and defines our life together as a local church. It defines how we unify It defines what we pursue. It it defines the end goal for everything that we're all about. It defines our life together as a local church. But Paul isn't finished applying the sufficiency of Christ to the lives of his readers. See, after addressing how the gospel transforms our life in general and how it transforms our life together as a local church, Paul now turns his attention to our homes. To our homes. And here, starting in verse 18... Paul shows us how the sufficiency of Christ affects our family relationships. Specifically, how the sufficiency of Christ, the reality of Christ, leads us to build, to pursue homes of grace. So let's read this next section of text, and then we'll begin working to unpack it. So I hope you're there. Chapter 3 of Colossians, starting verse 18. Look at what Paul writes. He begins, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that From the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. And then chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, Now, what we find here in this text is Paul addressing three sets of relationships that would have been common in the first century household. Now, you have husbands and wives. 
You have parents and children, and you have masters and servants. And, and these, these three sets of relationships, these groupings, were so common that you find lists like this, teaching in this form, addressing these three specific groups. You find them in other places in the New Testament, like Ephesians and 1 Peter. And you also find it given in documents outside of the New Testament. These were common groupings, common groupings in the first century. And teaching was often given in this form, addressing these groupings, uh, even teaching outside of the Scripture. And so, Protestant reformer Martin Luther dubbed this form of teaching as the household table. That's what we're seeing here, the household table. And, and what Luther was pointing out by that title, the household table, is simply that what we find here is kind of like a chart. It's a table in which all the various members of the household are addressed. Each member is being shown how they are to respond in their specific role in the household. However, what differs greatly from other household tables that you might find out there in the first century or that have been created by culture since the first century What differs greatly is that this household table, like the others we find in the New Testament, shows how the gospel, how the gospel invades these household relationships. It's not just like the secular household tables you would have found in the first century. This shows how the gospel invades these relationships. Notice the text. Notice the repeated mention of the Lord in these household tables. Verse 18, Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. In verse 20, we read, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, you have fearing the Lord. Verse 23, it says, for the Lord and not for men. In verse 24, there is a reminder that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, masters are reminded that you also have a master or a Lord in heaven. So it's repeated all throughout there. And what Paul's doing is he's using these common first century household categories. But he's taking those categories and he's showing these Colossian Christians how the lordship of Christ... How the sufficiency of Christ is manifest in all of those categories. He's showing them, really, how the gospel comes home. And it comes home, here's what I want you to understand. It comes home with grace. That's how it comes home. The gospel comes home with grace. Mark this, mark this down. I really want you to grab a hold of this this morning. What we see in all of these relationships shown in this table, and I'll unpack this as we work through this this morning, but what we see in all of these relationships shown in this table is the need for grace. The need for grace. Grace is to be given in these relationships, and grace is needed to give that grace. See, what I want you to understand is what we have here is is more than just a list of commands. Now, it'd be easy to read it this way. Look at this household table and read it this way. Do this, don't do that. Here's a list of commands. But what I want you to understand is this is far more than a list of do's and don'ts. You see, because this list is found in a letter, it's in a letter, there's a context here. It's found in a letter that is so full of the sufficiency of Christ and his grace towards us. This household table, it's really all about how we show that grace to one another in the power of God's grace towards us. That's what this is really all about. It's about how we show grace to one another in the power of God's grace towards us. Or to put it another way, in a home of grace, like Paul is picturing here, we say this. In a home of grace, we say this. As part of this family, part of a home of grace, as part of this family, I will give you more than you deserve, which is grace. I will give you more than you deserve, which is grace, through the power I don't deserve, which is also grace. For the glory of the Lord, I could never deserve who has shown us such amazing grace. That's really how the gospel comes home, brothers and sisters. It comes home when we say, as a part of this family, I will give you more than you deserve through the power I don't deserve for the glory of the Lord I could never deserve. Again, this is more than just a list of commands. This is a call to show grace. In the power of grace for the Lord of grace. And over the next few weeks, as we work through all of these relationships spelled out in this household table, you're going to see that over and over and over again. You see, what what you'll witness is this is really all about grace. It's all about grace. And I make this point because I want you to understand this. If you wait until your family members are deserving of this... Or if you try to do the things described in this text in your own ability. Or if you do it for the wrong goal. 
You will end up frustrated and discouraged and exhausted and missing the point. You'll miss the point. But if you realize that, that the root of all of this is grace, it's about the gospel coming home, it's about showing grace in the power of grace for the Lord of grace, then you're going to find joy. You're going to find strength. You're going to find peace in pursuing the kind of home described here in our text. So please don't misunderstand what Paul is doing. This is all about grace. Now let's look at the text. Let's look at this home of grace. And notice where it starts. Notice where it starts. What relationship does he address first? Husband and wife. He starts with the most important relationship in your home. The most important relationship in your home, your marriage. Now, we'll probably talk about this more next week. But in our busy and demanding and often child-centered approach to life, our marriages too often get neglected. But not here. Not here. This is where Paul starts. And he starts here because, brothers and sisters, this is where it all begins. This is where it all begins. This relationship, please hear me on this. This relationship, the marriage relationship, will define and shape and set the tone for all of the other relationships in your home. Sets the tone for everything. The marriage relationship can be this this fountain of grace from which all these other streams of grace flow to all the other relationships. Or they can be like the polluted stream that makes all the rest of life bitter. So essential, so essential. So that's where Paul starts. But notice here, in addressing the marriage relationship, Paul doesn't start by addressing the male role. He doesn't speak to the husbands first. Who does he speak to first? I don't know if you ladies are just hesitant about this. I don't want to mention it. Yeah, the wives. He speaks to the wives first. And he does so, I believe, because there's a pattern here, I think, in this text of first addressing the most difficult position in the relationship, the position which calls for the most grace to be shown. Now, as we'll see as we work through this, every position in the home, uh, there's a need for grace to be shown. But in this pattern here, the position of wife comes first, and the position of children comes first, the position of bond service, and as he addresses the groups, they just come first, because they're probably the people in the relationship that need the most grace, the most empowering grace, because they're the ones being called to submit or to obey. And, and that's not an easy calling. And I say it's not an easy calling. Because it's not easy calling when you're being called to submit to or to obey a fallen person. Can we get an amen on that one? Hey, there we go. Yeah, it's not, it's not easy when you're being called to submit to a fallen, sinful person. So Paul begins here by addressing the most important relationship in the home, the marriage. And by, I believe, addressing the person with the most difficult calling in that relationship, the wife. Notice what he calls the wife to do. Notice the grace she is to give. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, I was joking with some of you last week that I haven't preached in three weeks because I knew this text was coming and I was just scared. <laughs> However, although I was joking about that, I will admit that this is a challenging text. And I say that because it's a challenging calling being given here in this text. And I want to make sure you understand why I'm saying that. So so let's dig into this. Let's first address the main verb here. It's an imperative, this verb, submit. What does that mean? What is submission? Well, first, let me point out that submission is a repeated theme in the New Testament. Uh, The Greek verb that's translated here as submit, it's found 38 times in the New Testament, 23 of those times by the Apostle Paul. And this verb, submit, is used in a number of different contexts. Sometimes it's used of submission to God. Sometimes it's used of submission to his law. Sometimes it's used of submission of the church to Christ. Uh, Over in Romans 13, and there's a couple other passages that address this, but it's used to characterize our response as citizens to government. It's also used to show how Christians are to respond to the leaders in their church, how young men are to respond to their elders, and really how all Christians, over in Ephesians chapter 4, it speaks about how all Christians are to treat one another, giving preference to one another, submitting our wants to the needs of others. So all that to say, this term that we find here, it's not a unique term, and it's not a unique idea in the New Testament. Submission is an essential aspect of the Christian life. 
is an essential aspect of the Christian life. And we see it manifest in a number of different contexts, whether that is part of our life in the church, whether that's part of our life under government, or simply our life before God. However, here, Paul points out how this is an aspect of a woman's life in marriage. So we really haven't addressed that question. What is, what is being called for by this verb, submit? What is the meaning of this word that's found so often in the New Testament? Well, the Greek verb itself is a compound word made up of the, the verb to designate and the prefix under. So simply it's to, to designate under someone or something. But let me give a little more nuance to that definition. First, looking at our text here, notice that when Paul addresses the actions of the children or the bond servants in this passage, he uses a different term. He uses a different verb. He uses the verb obey. And I want you to understand, those two verbs, submit and obey, they're different verbs. There's a different tone. There's a much stronger tone in that verb, obey. There's a force there that's missing in this verb, submit or designate under. And to further emphasize the difference in the tone between the verb obey and the verb submit is the fact that Paul has put this verb submit in what's called the middle voice. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of Greek grammar facts here. Let me just say this. When this verb submit is in the middle voice instead of in the active voice, it is describing, mark this down, voluntary, willing action. Voluntary, willing action. As one one commentator put it, the appeal to us as free agents to take a place of submission voluntarily. So that's the kind of designating under that's being described here. It is describing, here's a little definition for you, the voluntary placing of yourself under the leadership or direction of another person. The voluntary placing of yourself under the leadership or direction of another person. And here God is giving that calling to a woman in marriage. She is to place herself voluntarily under the leadership and direction of her husband. No one is to force her to do that. Especially the husband. So if I hear of any guys in the church saying, submit, you're out of line. That's not the call in scripture. This command isn't given to the husbands. It's a calling upon a wife. She's placed herself voluntarily under the leadership and direction of her husband. In a home of grace, that's to be the pursuit of a wife. She is to willingly place herself under the leadership of her husband, encouraging that leadership. But what does that mean? What does that look like, encouraging that leadership? Well, it means she's not to try to dominate him. She's not to be overriding his decisions, constantly being critical of him and challenging his authority. Instead... She is to embrace him as the leader of their home, cheering him on in that role and making leading of the family a joy and a delight for him. She is, ladies, you are to show your husbands that grace. That grace. But maybe you're asking yourself, Ryan, why are you putting it that way? Why are you calling it grace? If I say this is a grace to be given by a wife, I mean, looking at the text, it's an imperative, right? It's a command. So isn't the wife just obeying what the Lord is calling her to do? Why then call it grace? Here's what I'm calling it grace. There's a lot of things in our life that we're called to do by the Lord that are still grace to those who receive them. And it's grace because the recipients of that are not worthy of it. We're called to do it by the Lord, but the recipients of it are not worthy of it. So whether that's forgiving those who sin against us, are they worthy of our forgiveness? No, we forgive because we've been forgiven. Amen? We forgive because we've been forgiven. So we do for them what they are not, what's not worth, they're not worthy of. Or, or loving our enemies. Our enemies deserving of our love. Have they been so lovable? No. But we show them that grace because that's what God has called us to do. And they're not worthy of that. Or in this case, a woman is being called to submit to her equal. And that's what's really going on here. It's grace, because a wife is being asked to place herself under the leadership of her equal. Not worthy of it. We're not worthy of it. But that's what they're being asked to do. Now, this idea of being, placing yourself under an equal, that has not always been the culture of view, cultural view of women, that they are equal to men. 
Uh, in the days and day and age in which the New Testament was written, um, I'm going to go into a bunch of details on this, but women were treated horribly, uh, and they were viewed as significantly inferior to men. Commentator William Hendrickson explains in the the non-Christian circles of that day, wives, in fact, women in general, were regarded as being inferior beings. Among the Greeks, in spite, he says, in sp- among the Greeks, in spite of their high degree of culture, wives, as a rule, were considered were not considered to be equals or even the companions of their husbands. The Romans too regarded women as being intrinsically inferior. Philo, a Jewish philosopher who was greatly influenced by Greek philosophy. He regarded women as being intrinsically selfish and jealous and hypocritical and married men as being no longer free but slaves. And anybody who knows history, you know that history is full of such foolish and offensive views about women. I want to be clear on something this morning. That is not the biblical view. Amen? That is not the biblical view. In the biblical view, both men and women are created equal. Both men and women are co-image bearers. They're both created in the image of God with all of the dignity and all of the honor that comes with that. Back in the beginning, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read this. So God created man, and that, that word there, man, it doesn't mean males. It means human beings. So God created man, created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created human beings, male and female, He created them. So the biblical view is that both men and women are image bearers. They are equal. And they also stand as equal in Christ. They are co-heirs in Christ. Over in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, the same apostle who wrote the words of our text for this morning, he says this. Listen, this is Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 29. For as many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one. Isn't that awesome? You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we're all co-heirs in Christ. We're all equal. So there is no inferiority in the biblical view. Both genders are co-image bearers. Both genders are co-heirs in Christ. There is this beautiful equality. However, in that equality, there is also diversity. The genders are equal, but they're not identical. And that's, that's a good thing, amen? That's a good thing. Our culture often wants to erase that, wants to try to ignore that. But it's part of God's good design. The genders, they complement one another. Their differences work together to honor God and to care for one another. My point here is that those differences do not mean inferiority. They do not mean inferiority. So as Paul calls a wife to willingly submit herself under the authority of her husband, this is a call for grace. Because it's a call to give a husband far more than he deserves because an equal, an equal is being put under his leadership. But that's not the only reason I'm calling this grace because it's an equal being placed under his leadership. Ladies, this is also called to show grace because you are placing yourself under the authority of a sinner. Can I get an amen on that one? There are things that your husband probably has done and will do that will make it so abundantly clear that he is not worthy of your submission. There are things, I'm a husband, I have done things, simple things, that show I'm not worthy of her submission. Ladies, we will not lead you perfectly. I'm not aiming to be imperfect in it. It's just the reality. We're, we're called to lead you like Christ leads the church. But the reality is that we're going to fail in that. We're going to make foolish decisions. We're going to make selfish decisions. And sometimes we're going to make just plain old stupid decisions. So for all the husbands in the church, I'll say this. Ladies, we are not worthy. We're not worthy of your submission. We're not worthy of you voluntarily placing yourself under our leadership. And that's why this command is really a call to show grace. It's a call to show grace. It's a call to honor the Lord by showing grace to your husband, placing yourself under his leadership, under the leadership of your equal, under the leadership of of a sinner, and encouraging him in that leadership for the good of your family and for the glory of our God. That is the grace to be given by a wife. 
But let's be real honest. We're in church. We have to be real honest this morning. Always giving this grace, submitting to your husband, always submitting to your husband, is hard. It's a challenging calling. Can I get an amen on that one? It's a challenging calling. And so what we need to understand here is not just the grace that's to be given by a wife, but we also need to understand the grace needed by a wife. The grace that's needed by a wife. Again, look at what Paul says there in verse 18. Look at the text. He doesn't just give the the naked, bare-bones command, wives, submit to your husbands. He anchors it into something, doesn't he? What does he anchor it into? What does the text say? As is what? Fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. See, in the Lord. That's an important phrase. In the Lord. That is the fountain of grace that you need in order to show this grace. Ladies, and, and all of you will hear me say this repeatedly as we work through this household table. But ladies, for you this morning, this calling is impossible in your own strength. This calling is impossible in your own strength. Submission is far, far from easy. And there are obvious reasons for that. I already mentioned a big obvious reason, the reality of your husband. You're being called to submit yourself to your equal. And sometimes it's so hard because that doesn't seem to make sense, submitting yourself to your equal. Our hearts ask, why can't we both lead? Why can't we both lead? As though that were even a realistic possibility. Let me tell you, one person will eventually take the reins and lead. The buck will eventually stop with someone. But it's hard. It's hard not to take that position of leadership when you feel like you're better suited for it. I'm just going to lead. I'm better suited for it. Or he's making poor decisions. Or you're just tired of the way he's doing things or or not doing things. So it's really hard. It's really hard to submit. And it's especially hard in our culture. I was thinking about this. According to the prevailing view in our culture, I don't know if you agree with me on this one, but according to the prevailing view in our culture, the great evil in our culture seems to be authority. That is the great evil. And the great virtue in our culture seems to be independence. That's the way our culture is wired right now. The great evil is authority. And the great virtue is independence. The mantra of our culture seems to be, I will do what I want, when I want, how I want. And if you don't like it, I'm going to protest. But honestly, that seems to be the, the view of our culture. And so here's the thing, brothers and sisters. As we grow up in that culture... And we are saturated with that culture. I mean, we are. Amen? We are saturated with it. Even when we try to stand against it, we're we're saturated with it. We grow up in that culture. We're saturated with the culture. And then the Bible comes along and says, willingly place yourself under the authority of another. Another who is your equal. Another who's going to make bad decisions from time to time. Another who's going to blow it from time to time. The Bible comes along and says that, and our hearts want to say, no way. I'm not doing that. It's the way our hearts are wired. It brings me in another reason why this is so hard. It's so hard because our hearts, our flesh, our flesh doesn't want to submit to anything. Doesn't want to submit to anything. Our hearts don't want to submit. They don't want to follow. They don't want to be under the leadership of another. Our flesh always wants to be in charge. Our flesh wants to do things our way. When we want how we want. So ladies, this call to show this grace to your husbands is hard. I would even say because of our flesh and your own strength, it's impossible. So if it feels that way, if you feel yourself pushing back against that, if it feels like, man, I've tried this, this is impossible. It should. It should feel impossible. But here's where things change. Here, here's where there is Hope and strength. Hope for obedience to the Lord. And hope for us to show grace to one another. Here's where hope and strength for obedience and grace comes from. It comes from you being asked to show this grace in the Lord. In the Lord. That little phrase, that little phrase, in the Lord, is such a key phrase in this book. I've said this before, but I think... The summary statement of this book of Colossians, it's found back in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Take your Bibles and turn back over there, back to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I think this is the summary statement of the book. Let me remind you of what these verses say. Starting verse 6, chapter 2. Therefore, it's right any of these Christians, therefore, as you 
received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you received Christ Jesus as who? The Lord. So walk in him, in the Lord. Rooted and built up in him, in the Lord, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, if you remember when we worked through those verses, I explained that that command, which is actually the very first command in this entire letter, that command is a command to continue living in the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a call to continue living in the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a call to continue looking to him. Continue looking to his sufficiency. To keep finding your identity and your life and your power and your strength and your hope and your joy and your peace and on and on we could go. But to find everything, to find it all in Christ. So Paul has been using this phrase in him repeatedly throughout this letter to make this point. We find it all in Christ, in the Lordship of Christ. We continue living in the Lordship of Christ, finding everything in him. And so back here in chapter 3, verse 18, go ahead and turn back there to our text. Back in the first command of this household table, Paul uses this phrase again, in the Lord, and he's referencing the same point. The fountain. The fountain for this grace that is to be shown by a wife to her husband. The fountain is Christ. The fountain is Christ. It's the Lordship of Christ. And here's the thing. The more you push into Christ, the more you find your identity in Christ. The more you find your life in Christ. The more you find your power in Christ, your strength in Christ, your hope in Christ, your joy, your peace, all of it in Christ. All of it there because of his grace, not because you work for it, right? But as you find all of that in Christ, guess what it does? It frees you up to show It's not about what am I going to get out of this. I'm finding it all in Christ, which then frees me to turn and show grace. So the, the more you find it in Christ, the more you will find yourself liberated to show grace. To show grace to your equal. To show grace to your fellow sinner. To show grace to your struggling husband who's been called by God to lovingly lead your family. The more you push into Christ, the more you will find yourself freed to show that grace. And if you're struggling, let me encourage you. Push into Christ more. Push into Christ more. Because the more we push into Christ and find everything in Christ, the more we are free to turn and show grace to others. And if we really understand this, You not only find yourself freed, but you also find yourself joyfully showing that grace. You also find yourself joyfully showing that grace. And here's how you're going to find joy in this. You look again at the text. Paul says, as is fitting. As is fitting in the Lord. And what I think that Paul is getting at by that phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, is not just that, that he's the source of our strength to show this grace. But really Paul's pointing us to the ultimate goal. In showing this grace. You see, all Christian submission has one termination point. Whether that's submission to human government, submission to leadership in the church, or submission in the home. And that termination point is who? It's God, right? All Christian submission is ultimately aimed at submitting to God. He is the termination point. God has delegated his authority to certain positions of leadership, whether that's in the church or in government or in the home. He's delegated authority. So by submitting to those positions of leadership, we are really submitting to God himself. And understanding that, understanding that truth, all submission is the termination point is God. Understanding that first, it helps guard our actions. Here's what I mean by that. It helps guard our actions. If any human authority calls us to actions which are contrary to what God has called us to do, if human government comes along and says, stop preaching the gospel. Or if church leadership comes along and says, accept as sinful the things that God would reject. Or accept as holy the things that God would say are sinful. Or if a husband comes along and calls a wife to engage in activities that are against the will of God, we are free. We're actually compelled to say, no thank you. My allegiance is to God, ultimately. And so I submit to you as submission to him. So if you ask me to go against him... (laughs) I'm ultimately submitting to him, not you. So it it guards our actions. 
So wives, you are called to submit to show this grace as is fitting in the Lord. That, that guards our actions. You're ultimately submitting to the Lord. So if anything is being asked of you that's in contra- contrary to the will of God, well, thank you. I think I'm ultimately submitting to the Lord. But only does this guard our actions. Brothers and sisters, this ultimately guards our hearts. Here's what I mean by this. You see, as we submit in all these different relationships, whether that's government, church leadership, in the home, as we submit, we are ultimately submitting to the Lord Christ, and he is worthy of it. Amen? He is worthy of it. He is not our equal. And he is not sinful, nor will he fail us. He will not fail us. I said, ultimately, who are we submitting to? We are submitting to the one who is our loving, glorious, kind, perfect, trustworthy Savior. And as we submit, we are... Oh, man, this is something I'm praying that the Holy Spirit really drives to your heart. We are safe in his hands. We are safe in his hands. We are secure under his care. Now, sometimes it does not feel like that. But we are safe under his care. He has plans and purposes for us. His sovereign will. And they will be accomplished. God works all things together for our good. Amen? That's his promise. Does God keep his promises? Praise God he does. So ultimately we are secure. Yes, we are are guarded from doing things that would be contrary to the will of God. But we can submit joyfully. Knowing ultimately we are submitting to a Lord who loves us, in whose hands we are safe, in whose care we are secure. One who says, I'm going to work all things together for your good and I always keep my promises. And so as we look beyond those fallible human beings to whom we are called to submit, and we recognize that all submission is ultimately to our Lord Christ, we can joyfully say, you are worthy of this. Because he is. Amen? You are worthy of this. He is our glorious Savior. He is our glorious Lord who has given us far more than we could ever deserve. And in his hands, we are safe and secure. So, brothers and sisters, all of our submission is, yes, an act of grace to our fellow human beings. But it is also an act of worship to our Lord. It is saying to him, ultimately, this is for your glory. Because you are so worthy of this. For you have done for me and you have been for me far beyond what I could ever deserve. So I will show grace in the power of your grace. Because you are the Lord, my Lord of grace. This is for your glory. And that's what it looks like to bring the gospel home. That's what it looks like, brothers and sisters. This is more than just a list of do's and don'ts. This is how we bring the gospel home. Now, in this passage, we have a lot more to look at in the weeks ahead. We'll, uh, we'll talk about husbands, children, parents. We're even going to talk about the evil of slavery. We'll look at how, uh, through the way that our brothers and sisters endured slavery in the New Testament era, how we can learn a lot about grace and perseverance and truly living Christ-focused lives. But let me again summarize what we're going to see in the weeks ahead and what we've seen this morning. Let me summarize it under this heading of pursuing a home of grace. Again, it is so easy, brothers and sisters, to let the world define our homes. To fall in this trap of our homes becoming places of busyness, frustration, or discouragement, or disappointment. But brothers and sisters, that is not what God has called us to do. That's not the kind of home that God desires for you. That's not the kind of home that he wants you to have. Instead, he has called each of us. He's called us each in our own role. Each one of us in our own role to pursue building a home of grace. And that means that each member of the family, parents and children, husbands and wives, need to be willing to say, as part of this family, I will give you more than you deserve. Not rubbing people's face in it. But being honest and saying, I will give you more than you deserve. On the power of the grace, I don't deserve. For the glory of the Lord, I could never deserve. I will show you grace and the power of grace for the Lord of grace.
That's the kind of home that God wants. That's what it looks like, brothers and sisters, to bring the gospel home. We're going to close our service this morning by celebrating the gospel. We're going to gather together around the Lord's table. And as we do this, we're going to remind ourselves where our hope is found. As we walk through this this morning, as we will continue to walk through this, let me just say to all of you, our hope is not found in our ability to just knuckle down and endure. That's not where our hope is found. Our hope is found, your hope is found, my hope is found, our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Who lived for us, died for us, and rose again so that we would be saved eternally and so that we could have the strength and the power to live radical lives. Lives that display his amazing, transforming, glorious grace at work in us and given to other people. So I ask the men to come forward for our time around the Lord's table. And let's ask God to bless this time together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for the way that it challenges us for the way that it makes us uncomfortable, for the way that it exposes our fears, the way that it exposes our pride, for those moments that it brings us to the place of going, how in the world could I do this? Because it also gives us the answer. It leads us to Christ. And it's only in his strength. It's only because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection that we can do any of this. So I praise you for that. Praise you for the way the, the word leans on us. Bring us to the end of ourselves. And show us how Christ is everything. He is our hope. So I pray for all of our hearts this morning. I pray that you would excite us to show grace to one another. Excite us to lean into the power of your grace. Excite us to glorify you, the Lord of grace. And I pray that you would be ministering to us by your spirit as we gather together around this table. May this not just be something that we're tacking onto the end of our service this morning. But may this be all of us bringing our hearts before you, saying, Lord, examine me. Where's my hope? Where's my confidence? Where's my identity? By your Spirit, keep pointing us to Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. These things we pray in his name.